One of the things we are so often tempted by in our faith is to think about Christianity as this stuff you like intellectually just assent to. Like there's a bunch of things in the world that you're supposed to decide which thing you kind of agree with. And then once you intellectually grasp it and you get your mind around it, that that's the thing that you choose to do. So we think that Christianity is like just one of these philosophies that we're supposed to agree with. You either believe it or you don't. And of course, that's, that's true to some extent, like as far as it goes. But when you become part of the family of God, we believe you actually become something. It's not something you just believe. It's something you become. It changes your foundational identity. And when you live by the patterns and rhythms that go along with faith, we believe it actually forms you. Like, it it shapes who you are. Now, in our Old Testament reading today, the first thing that I hope we see from it is that God's people are shaped or formed by remembrance, by remembrance. So in our reading, the children of Israel, they've been in captivity in Egypt. God has brought plagues upon the Egyptian oppressors, revealing that he is the true God of the world and that all of the Egyptian gods, all the false gods that they held onto are false, are hollow. But even after all of this, They're still in Egypt. God's people are still in Egypt. They haven't yet been rescued. And it's at this point that God says, I'm going to give you a meal to celebrate. Okay, what are are we celebrating? Because we're still here. (laughs) He says, I'm going to give you a meal to celebrate. The rescue has not yet occurred, but he gives them a celebration before the event actually even happens. They're told to celebrate their liberation before they're actually liberated. Imagine this, if God said to you, hey, here's what I want you to do. You hear a voice from God speaking to you. It says, I want you to gather all your friends and family and get everybody together, set aside a good time, get a birthday cake, sing a birthday song, prepare a bunch of gifts, but there's not a person born yet. That'd be odd. Well, one of the things this shows us is God is as concerned about the celebration of the event than he is about the event itself. God is just as interested in forming a delivered people as he is in delivering them. As Christians, he is just as concerned about us becoming resurrection people as he is about the resurrection. So the celebration of Passover, and that's what this reading is, it's the giving, the uh, laying out of Passover, is a call to remember But this often gets lost in translation. Remembering is not what we often think it is. Remembering is not like scratching our head and hearkening back. It's not like uh, somebody who appears on a witness stand and then they say, I do not recall. Like that's what we often think when we think of remembering. Remembering is way deeper in the ancient world than that. To remember is to enter into the reality of that event. For ancient people, remembering was as much physical and emotional as it was mental. So Passover is not just hearing a story. Hey, remember that story? Remember that thing that happened? It's enacting a story. It's stepping into a story. So God is calling his people for generations to step back into the story of their deliverance. And then many rabbis believed throughout history that when you step into the Passover story, it's just as if you were there in the first place. It's just as if you were there generations ago. Now, Christians, we affirm that in Jesus, there's a new exodus or a new Passover. Not only from Egypt, 
but from the slavery of sin and death. The resurrection has happened, and God is interested in forming a resurrection people. And that's why habits are so important in our faith. Every Sunday, the church has believed throughout history that every Sunday is kind of like a little Easter Sunday. It's funny, even during Lent, like when we fast and we get real serious and we recognize our sin and all that stuff, every Sunday you break your fast because it's like, it's Easter. It's celebration again of the, re- of the resurrection of this thing that has happened. And every time we approach the table of the Lord, we are living into the reality of Christ's death for us. We step into the event and we are changed. We're formed. Now, this is really thing that to us is super odd. And that's in this story, this idea of placing blood on the doorpost. If you heard the reading today, God tells them to mark their doorposts with blood of a, blood of a lamb. Well, God is about to bring a terrible catastrophe. We're about to see the killing of the firstborn throughout Egypt. And the blood on the door marks that place as a home that God can pass over. That's where Passover comes from. So it raises all kinds of questions for us as modern people. One of them is, isn't God all-knowing? Shouldn't he just like know which houses are the Israelite houses? Like, shouldn't God figure that out? Why do they need to mark it? Like, why does God need to see like red on a doorpost in order to know that that's an Israelite home? Shouldn't he figure that out? Well, I want to suggest that the practice of doing this, of marking their doors, was formative for the people. This physical action is a sense of remembrance, of reminding themselves of who they are. They are God's people. And they reassure themselves that God will work on their behalf and they will be safe. It's also a a point of resistance. They're saying we resist the Egyptian empire. We resist the oppression that they've put us under. We are the people of God. But this story is also interesting because it's about remembrance And then there's this sense that it's about running. (laughs) The children of Israel are preparing to run from slavery and run to God's promise for them. So the meal that God gives them for Passover is a meal in a hurry. You could say it's fast food that he gives them. like Because everything that they do in the meal is a reminder to hurry up. They need to be ready to hurry up. Now, you guys know there's a difference between a meal that you pick up on the road, like Jimmy John's is freaky fast, right? Like you go get that really quick. Or a meal that you sit down and you eat to mark a special event in somebody's life. There's a difference there. But somehow this meal is both. It's a hurry up meal and it's a special event meal. Something is happening. So he tells them, roast the lamb over the fire and roast every part of the lamb. That was a quick way to cook the lamb. And then eat flatbread because there's no time to make proper bread because we can't wait for leaven to rise and bread to rise. Just eat flatbread. Why? Because deliverance is coming. You're going to be set free from slavery any time now. There's no time to wait for that stuff. And then the command in verse 11 is tuck your cloak in your belt. Feet need to be exposed. You can't be tripping over your robe, right? Like be ready to run. And then notice they're to eat with staff in hand, presumably standing up. God is telling them to practice it this way of celebration. So for generations, you will remember your deliverance when God set you free quickly. So that means when things get mundane or difficult in life, your practices are a way of forming you as the people of God. 
that you were delivered from bondage quickly. So there's an urgency here. The one who delivers you, delivers you because of his great love. So be ready for your deliverance. In addition to being shaped by, um, by remembrance, by running, the people of God are shaped by rescue. Yahweh says, on that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. This is the only time in the story that the Egyptian gods are mentioned. It was the responsibility of the Egyptian gods to take care of their people according to their belief system. So what the plagues do is they one by one systemically show that each of the Egyptian gods are false. They can't do it. They're hollow. They're empty. Egypt has trusted in ways that have formed them towards oppression, have formed them against God's loving creational purposes for the world. Now, it gets controversial. There's some question over who carries out the killing of the firstborn of the Egyptians. In verse 12 and elsewhere, God speaks in first person. He says, this is his task and he will do it. And that's really tough. We have to sit with that today and go, what do we do with the fact that God says he will carry out such a terrible thing? And I don't have easy answers for it. And I don't think there are easy answers for it. Yet it does get more complicated later because later Moses doesn't say that God's going to do it. Moses refers to the destroyer as the one who carries it out. Now, destroyer is hardly an image for God that would never have been used for God. But this phrase is used of this event elsewhere in the Bible. So the author of Hebrews calls it the destroyer carried it out. So some have suggested that what God has been doing all along has been holding back the destroyer from wreaking havoc on God's good creation. By oppressing the Israelites, Pharaoh is working against God's creational intent. So the final plague here is the consequence of trusting in gods which corrupt, which malform the people. So I don't think as Christians we can read this faithfully and go, yeah, those Egyptians got what they deserve. No, the victims are children. We can't do that. I think we can only read this grieving. We're grieving the oppression of Israel, that Israel has been oppressed. And we're grieving the fact that the world is so broken. Creation has gotten so out of hand that these kind of things occur. In the midst of it all, God's people are rescued. They are identified. This is not just so they can breathe a sigh of relief. This is so they can be a blessing to the world. That's always been the call of God's people, to be a blessing to the world. And I want to suggest they are delivered, they are set free so that they can grieve with and shine light on those whose lives have been wrecked by the chaos of the destroyer. That's what our rescue is. That's what our baptismal identity is. It's not just, phew, I'm part of the God club, good, I'm... Uh, you know, I'm going to a good place. No, it's I am marked out to be a blessing to a hurting and grieving world. I am marked out to grieve with those who grieve, to mourn with those who mourn, to sit in the midst of the chaos. And finally, Christians are shaped by reconciliation. Our God puts things right. 
Paul says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were alienated from God, when we were even his enemies, Christ died for the ungodly. And so Matthew 18, our gospel reading that Deacon Jessica read, is, is so good because what it does is it points us to this model of being a reconciling people. And I think in our world, we need models of reconciliation. I mean, we do not do well reconciling with people with whom there has been a break. Think about social media for a minute, right? Like the point so often in any debate or discussion on social media is to own the other person, right? To put them in their place. We need better models. Jesus offers a pattern that is rooted in the pursuit of reconciliation and wholeness. This is part of a larger section on forgiveness. And when we forgive someone, what forgiveness is not is it's not papering over an offense. It's not saying that, hey, you did wrong to me, but it's no problem. It's no big deal. Don't worry about it. No, that's not forgiveness. Forgiveness isn't saying that the offense wasn't real, that it didn't happen. No, as N.T. Wright says, forgiveness is when it did happen and it did matter. And you're going to deal with it and end up loving and accepting one another again anyway. Jesus presents us with a process that was revolutionary in the ancient world. It was a victim-led process. So the person who has been hurt can initiate this. In the ancient world, it was, no, you're on the underside of power. You're on the underside of power. You don't really have any rights here. But Jesus says, no, if you've been offended, you're the one who initiates this process. And the goal here is restoration, is Jesus says winning over the family member so that they can be restored. So Jesus says, first, we go to the, go to the person one-on-one. This is out of respect for the person. So you do so in private. If someone has hurt you, you go to them, you address them individually about that. Then if you've gone to somebody individually and they still don't listen to you, take two other people with you. This is as a check on your judgment. This isn't ganging up on them, all right? This isn't, hey, I'm gonna get you because you didn't agree the first time, so I'm gonna get my buddies and we're gonna, no, that's like the mob. That's not Jesus's thing, right? Jesus's thing is a check on you. Am I right in this? Am I clear in this? The third act is if a person is still completely unrepentant, unrepentant to tell the church about it, <laughs> okay? Now, Jesus is probably at this point referring to small groups, not standing up in the middle of a church service and saying, this person offended me, right? But this is a way of kind of bringing something to light. The aggrieved, it also says, is not to rush to this step. Remember, the goal here is not just for the aggrieved party, but it's so that even the offending one can be healed. You make every effort for the offending one to be healed. Then the hardest part, I think, for us is here at the end. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. A couple things here. We first have to remember that Christianity emerged in the midst of this Roman Empire, and Christians were a small minority. And it was critical that they stay together. Now, Jesus is speaking these words even before the church has formed, but he knows that this new community is going to be tight-knit and it's going to be difficult. And so, so there, there's this sense of if there's any evil in our midst at all, we got to be really serious and deal with this now because otherwise we did or we could be killed. If there's any unrepentant sin which has infiltrated the community, if the offending party refuses to face that, 
We've got to break fellowship. It's not going to work. Reconciliation can only come after the problem has been faced. But there's a second thing here. Treat him as a pagan or tax collector. We look at that and we go, oh, treat him like a bad guy. But remember Jesus' posture towards tax collectors and pagans? Mercy. There's always a desire for reconciliation. Now, the boundaries have to change because of the offense. That's necessary. But there is still hope for redemption. There are even times throughout history where the church has to excommunicate members who are abusive and unwilling to seek healing. I heard it once said, everyone is welcome to the table except the one who wants to destroy the table. Even in your life, there will be times where you have to set strict boundaries with people. Those of you that have lived for a little while, you know that. You know that that's necessary at times in life. You have to set boundaries, and when you do so, it doesn't mean you don't love the one who has hurt you. It doesn't even mean you don't forgive them. It just means there are times in life where that person can't be trusted in the same role in your life that they had before the offense. They can't be trusted, and that has to change. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, excommunication is really nothing more than the recognition of the state of affairs which already exists. So what he's saying is, if somebody's like broken fellowship and they're unrepentant, excommunication just addresses, this isn't working anymore. This also conveys the seriousness of the church. The church is not merely a club, social club, or an institution. Jesus says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So Jesus is saying that the church, guided by the Spirit of God, carries a heavenly authority. Jesus is saying that to be separated from the church is in some real way to be separated from heaven, from God's will. Now, we have to address that any talk, at least for me, maybe this isn't true of you, but anytime I hear anything about church discipline, it leaves a horrible taste in my mouth, right? We have all experienced times where a pastor aggressively used this scripture to enforce his view of sin or out of his own insecurity. And yes, I'm saying his on purpose to emphasize his power in the congregation. Let me clear that up. So, because I believe in women pastors, but I think it is far more often men that fall into this trap. This is why focus must always be on the desire for the community to be healed. That's the focus of this, restoration. And remember, this is led by the victims. It's initiated by the victims, not by the powerful or the power brokers. Jesus says that if two of them agree about anything they ask for, it'll be done by his Father in heaven. At this time in the Jewish culture, it was affirmed that when there was a just court, like a court was actually just, God's presence was there. That was affirmed. Uh, It was also said when two people gathered to discuss the law, God is there. His presence is there. So Jesus assumes God's presence is with the disciples, which guarantees when they have consensus in asking for prayer, for guidance on matters of discipline, the heavenly father will guide them as they carry it out. Notice the focus is on the character and heart of God. God is the reconciling, restoring one. That's who he is and that's what he does. Reconciliation is the goal. We have to admit that reconciliation is not always possible in this life as it is. 
We hope for the day when everything and everyone will be reconciled to God. But our hope now is how can we live as reconciling people here and now? You're going to have some relationships in your life where there's been offense and there's boundaries that have to be set, and you may not experience reconciliation this side of God's new world. And that's just part of the broken world that we live in. But our desire is always to live as people who pursue reconciliation. And this requires something counterintuitive. We have to value healing over being right, to value restoration over being better than our brother or sister. As I end here, our readings remind us of the ways God's people are to be shaped in light of who God is. We're a people shaped by remembrance, by running, by rescue, and by reconciliation. God's people are shaped by deliverance, by the God who sets them free, not by the gods of this world. False gods always fail us. And when I say false gods, I hope you guys know, I'm not talking about little statues that you may set up in your house. We don't really have that problem as much today or that challenge today. But, but we have so many things in our world that promise security, that promise fruitfulness, that promise the good life, and we can so easily pursue them, but they will always fail us. We are often so shaped by the Egypt of the culture around us and its idolatry that to run away from that can feel really odd and feel really strange. So Christian virtue is so difficult because our culture is not built on it. Think about the reconciliation thing. Our culture is built on revenge and vengeance and fighting the enemy and categorizing them. To pursue reconciliation is so counterintuitive and it's so hard. Each of the Egyptian gods were revealed over time as fakes. And that's what the plagues are all about. I want you to hear this for just a minute. The Egyptians trusted in the Nile River but the Nile River would always take care of them. The Nile River's God was called Hapi, and it was this image of the God of fulfillment, ultimate fulfillment. Well, notice the first thing that happens in the plagues is that the river turns to blood. The Egyptians trusted in the goddess Heket, who had a frog face, which is interesting. She represented fruitfulness in family life and in business. But fruitfulness can take a nasty turn if it's not in the right context. There is such a thing as success that spoils frogs everywhere. Then there are gnats, which countered the god Seb, the god of the earth. But gnats are crazy because what they do, I mean, we kind of have mosquitoes here. It's somewhat similar. They get in the middle of your leisure. You know, we set out a swimming pool for my daughters out in the front yard, but it seems like the, the, the water actually attracts all the mosquitoes. And so it's like, we're just trying to hang out, and, you know, have a fun afternoon. And then there's mosquitoes everywhere. The Egyptians were a leisurely people and the gnats were this plague of losing your cool. The Egyptians trusted in Kephara, who was a sacred scarab, a flying bug or a beetle. The plague of flies affected the environment and the land yet Israel's land was spared. The Egyptians' gods, Apis and Hathor, were a bull and a cow, and they provided possessions and wealth, and that goes away. The god Set was a god of chaos and disorder. Well, God takes the people's attention and focuses on the boils that they can't get rid of, this chaos and disaster. All we can focus is on the boils ourselves. 
And the plague comes about because Moses and Aaron take ashes and throw them in the sky. These ashes came from the kilns where they made bricks. So there's this poetic justice. What you meant for oppression of us and destruction has actually caused chaos in your life. The god Shu was the god of the atmosphere. The natural world goes haywire. Then there's these locusts. The Egyptians had this one god, Senehem, whose only job was to protect them from locusts. Like that was their one specific job. Like you, God, have one job. Keep us from locusts. And he fails at his one job. Then there's the sun god Ra, who is central to the Egyptian religion. The world goes dark. And the last plague is the death of the firstborn. This likely revealed the failure of Ptah, the god of life, but it also just showed the emptiness of all Egyptian religion. It's easy for us to look at this as a point of history. Man, those Egyptians, they were all messed up. They believed in silly gods and all this stuff. But this could easily be the gods that we prop up for ourselves. We trust in so many things for prosperity and security that are not God. Our political and cultural idols become central for us. Our false idols lead us towards counterfeits, towards exclusion, towards oppression. The good news is there is a better way. The one true God has rescued us and is shaping us by his grace. We are called to remember what God has done and who we are as his people. And this will always lead us towards reconciliation because he is the God of reconciliation. May we be a people of remembrance, shaped by God through our habits and patterns of celebration. May we be a people of running, ready to leave what binds us and move towards freedom. May we be a people of rescue who live differently because of who God is and what God has done for us. And may we be a people of reconciliation, knowing the God who brings all things together in him. Amen.